Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Lydia Rahill to the show. Welcome, Lydia. Thanks, Jeremy. Lydia is the Director of Strategic Accounts at CB Insights. They are an insights platform that helps companies and investors understand disruptive technology. Uh, We might talk a little bit about disruptive technology today, but we're mostly going to talk about uh, all things around being a strategic account executive, and in particular, one who has been crushing quota for as long as I've known her, routinely 200, 300, I'm not kidding about the 300% of her annual goals. Uh, I met, actually, I sort of met you, Lydia. (laughs) We had one month of overlap at CB Insights, but uh, I don't think we ever even had a meeting together, did we? No, I don't think so. But you were spoken about in very high regard. I uh, There was like a six month period where I had to leave for a visa. Sometime in that period, when I got back, you, you left pretty quickly. Yeah, that's when I left for, for sales loft, actually. But before we get to the, the heart of the matter here, I'd love to just get to know you a little bit. And I, I'm curious, you know, I ask a lot of people who grew up in the in the States, like what was the first thing I ever sold? But you grew up, I presume, in Ireland from your accent? Yes, I did. So what was the first thing you ever remember selling? I sold, I got in a lot of trouble for it. I used to burn CDs and <laughs> sell them in, in class in elementary school. <laughs> and then I got in trouble. So it was, my entrepreneurial endeavor was quickly shut down. <laughs> was it like very cliche that you were selling U2 CDs or were you selling no, something else? I think I was selling Shaggy CDs. Ah, okay. Yeah, when he was... When he was hot. <laughs> That's funny. That's awesome. Uh, well, well, I, I mentioned that you, you know, you grew up originally in Ireland and and went to school in Ireland. You have a background that I've seen a decent amount of in sales, especially high performing salespeople, which is they studied law and they may or may not have practiced for any period of time. Why the switch? Why why am I not talking to Lydia the lawyer right now? Why am I talking to Lydia the the rep and not just rep, right? But now you're going to be moving on to managing a strategic accounts team. So, you know, it's funny because I really, really was passionate about doing law. And I, you know, I think since I was 12, I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. I really want to be a lawyer. And I like worked really hard to get there. And it was actually in college. So just for context, in Ireland and most of Europe, you can like take these exams to do law as an undergrad to be a lawyer. Um, so that's what I did. So that's the degree to which I wanted to be a lawyer. Like I, <laughs> I had to work pretty hard to get there. And then it was probably my final year, you know, before I graduated, I had a lot of exposure to the actual job and the reality of it and firms. And I just realized it was not for me. Like I'm not a, I'm not a dot the I cross the T kind of person. I just like wasn't excited about the actual job itself. I think the idea of it had been exciting for me. Funnily enough, I I became like president of our like student law society, which is a club for you guys in college or student government. I actually think that's what made me realize I didn't want to do law because a lot of that is more like, you know, you're running events and you're running initiatives and you're running fundraisers and you're trying to market the society and win membership and win sponsorship. And actually I've enjoyed that stuff so much. Like I really loved pitching and getting sponsorship and all that, that I, 
you know, and even like you would invite guests and I would sit down for days and cold call. I got like Jed Johnson in and, you know, our former president, Mary Robinson of Ireland, you know, loads of really high profile guests just from cold calling. And the sort of thrill and excitement of that compared to like going to a firm and doing contracts, like I think this is more my my cup of tea. I'm curious how that how that went. How did you secure the the president of Ireland to to come and engage your group? Yeah, so funnily enough, she had been the president of the Law Society when she was in college and she was actually the first woman to be the president of any sort of student government body in my college. So I really wanted to get her, you know, I admired her a lot and I I tried to go through the alumni and eventually I was able to get in touch with her directly. Then I actually through her asked for an introduction to other people and you know there was a knock-on effect there as well. So so much in in what it takes to be an effective salesperson there, right? That you're 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 working your way to power, you're leveraging some sort of common interest, you are then parlaying that into referrals to, you know, other people at the same echelon. So I think that's impressive. One thing though that surprised me in what you just said was you said that you're you were you're not a person who dots the I's and crosses the T's. And one of the things I've noticed about great reps and one of the things people told me about you when, you know, you were sorting out your visa thing was like that you know every detail of every deal all the time. And other top reps that I've spoken to, that's what people say about them as well. Are you still a person who doesn't dot the I's and cross the T's or, or did I just understand the Yeah, it really depends on how you define it. Like for me, I think I'm so goal orientated, you know, and in sales, it's like, hey, here's your quota. Here's my personal goal uh, on top of that quota. Here's all the different ways I can get there. And so with that goal in mind, that's a goal that's exciting and challenging for me. I will make sure I understand every detail of anything that's real. But I think that's a little different to like, you know, I'm probably not great at my Salesforce admin because I'm probably not great at going through the ops that aren't my best priorities and crossing the I's and <laughs> or crossing the T's and dotting the I's. You know, you, you chase the goal. And with that in mind, I will kind of remember everything and have details on top priority, but it, it definitely requires managing my time in the right way. And I, I sort of ruthlessly prioritize and ruthlessly qualify in order to do that. You you did a few interesting things before you got to CB Insights, but you started at CB Insights as a BDR, as an SDR. That means I would assume you learned most of the trade at CB Insights. So I'm curious, uh, and I, I probably know some of these names having, you know, having overlapped with you, but I, I'm curious, who did you learn the most from? Not just one person, I guess, but who are some of the people that you learned from? Yeah. I have so many mentors and so many people that I learned from. You know, one of the things I am very dedicated to is learning, but that doesn't mean like every boss you have do everything that they say. It's more like pick your people and I understand their strengths and understand their weaknesses. Like I have several different mentors specifically in sales. Like I know what they're good at, what they're bad at, and they I will pick the the strengths and learn from them and be very open about the fact that that's like what I want to get from people. So, you know, when I started CB Insights, I think there was like six people on the sales team, about 30 people in the whole company. I was one of three SDRs. So it was very scrappy, just like, here's your goal, figure it out. Here's a list of accounts, figure it out. And then it went to, all right, we're going to start finding new accounts and, you know, basically just thrown in the deep end, figured it out and sort of started to scale that in more of a team lead role. 
when I moved into closing, my first boss was the director of sales. His name was Harrison. I think he probably taught me a lot about pain selling. Funnily enough, he's like not a sales guy. <laughs> um, you know, his passion was was in product, but he started, you know, early stage on the BD side and helped scale that. And he taught me a lot about pain, just really understanding the client's needs and and driving the pain to the product. I remember, God, it was so hard back then. You know, they hadn't, they'd never promoted an SDR to an AE. So the, I, I failed the test three times. I had to demo my CEO and, and you know, which was very intimidating at the time. And I had to basically learn how to give a like stellar demo. Then we got Mark Jacobs and a guy called Mike Hoffman, who, you know, they are, <laughs> they want everyone to get on the phones and everyone to to drive urgency, which was absolutely awesome. Like when they first came, I was like, this is different. And after a couple of months, I was like, oh, wow, like now I know how to really sell. I'll pause there just to go back on the, on a couple of things. Um, one is it's no joke pitching to Anand. He's a extreme the CEO of CB Insights. He's an extreme perfectionist, so I'm not surprised he failed you three times before you before you, he allowed you to pass. But that's probably good. It, it built kind of right drive and, and resolve and character. I guess the other th- question I have is people who know CB Insights and and many do because CB Insights has a newsletter that is I think best described as ubiquitous. There are hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million people who subscribe to that. And it gives incredible background on on what's happening disruptive technology-wise. When you started, was the newsletter a big thing? Was there already a decent amount of what could be classified as, I don't want to call it inbound leads, but sort of awareness and potential awareness out there? No, the newsletter was not a big thing. As a sales org, very, very lucky and gifted to have this just like content marketing machine. <laughs> and there were three people working on the IU team, Matt Wong, Nikhil, and Mike Dempsey. And they just started blowing up because their stuff was so good. Like it's that simple. (laughs) And there were no tricks. It was just like really good quality stuff. That's when we started to see a lot more inbound, but specifically in just the VC market, like we we just started off capturing that industry and that market. But it's funnily enough, a pretty small market. And so our product very quickly evolved to the needs of large corporations, innovation teams, corporate strategy teams, digital transformation. And now they're just popping up all over the place as technology keeps becoming a priority. In that transition, you needed to learn a new language, right? Because when you're and, and a new value proposition, right? Because when you're selling to VCs, there's a particular language, there's a particular value proposition. They're notoriously hard to sell to, right? Because they're so project focused and they love to tap their network for free, of course. Um, so how did you go about learning the the language of, you know, the strategy professional inside of a, a Fortune 100 enterprise from, from speaking to VCs? Yeah, I would say, honestly, just asking questions and not being afraid to ask those questions. And actually going back to like who I've learned a lot from, Jason Celine, he was like my team lead when I first became an AE. And I was, you know, I had studied law. And so I, I would come to work when I was trading for the, this like test with Anand and I would have, or what I saw as a test, and I would have flashcards with like highlights of like product to pay use cases. And he just was like, Lydia, throw them out. <laughs> it's like, that's not how you learn sales. He was like, getting on demos, throwing yourself in the deep end, mock demos, mock pitches, like, you know, and obviously he would teach me the core principles, but he was like, flashcards on like, 
different features like you got to just learn by doing and he was absolutely right like I after I took that approach it was a lot easier I was just setting up like we I had such great supportive coworkers. we had such great coaching culture back then that I think I was doing like four mock demos a day with different reps to train myself to get that done you mentioned the trifecta here of of folks that I did work closely with Mark Jacobs Mike Hoffman uh, sometimes I forget his name is Mike because we all call him Hoff and uh, and Jason Celine, all just incredible sales leaders. I'm curious if you picked one thing from each of them that you learned. Well, Jason, I guess you just told us, but you can re- you can rehash that. So, yeah, I mean that's one thing I learned from Jason is like just throw yourself in the deep end. I think also he's just like got good poise. Even late into my career as an AE, I would be like over talking, and I remember him always just like hand up to signal like stop, stop talking. <laughs> The power of yes or correct, those are the kind of things that he he would teach me. Half urgency without a doubt, like how to how to drive urgency. It like wasn't even when he before he came, like I was like, you know, before I was a true salesperson is just like jarred by the sales language. Uh, I was like, of course I'm not gonna like pressure these buyers. There there's a way to not pressure people, but also there it's important to understand timelines, speak directly about timelines, hold your prospect accountable. That kind of urgency, not being afraid of applying urgency and talking through timelines and holding your prospect accountable, that's definitely something Huff taught me. And for Mark, you know Mark as a leader, he's very like he likes to empower people. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest things I learned from him, definitely you know, more someone that I looked up, look up to as a leader and learn more in that regard from him. You're, you're about to, to make a move from almost seven years there as indisputably the highest performing individual contributor into a leadership role. You know, as you move into that transition, I, I assume it's equally important to understand why reps fail. I'm curious, in your time there, as you've watched some reps succeed, some fail. What are some of the reasons that you see reps fail? Yeah, I think there are two fundamentals that if you don't have, you are bound to fail. <laughs> um, and those are work ethic and coachability. I have seen people who aren't super highly skilled or you know super adept at the product and the, the sell be so hardworking that they were able to work themselves out of that situation combined with so coachable, you know, like really listening to people and taking it on board and executing on coaching as well as just really determined and willing to work. And when I hire, those are two things I look for. Yeah. Those are two, like, it's hard to test for, right? Like those two things. Yeah. That was actually the question I had, which is how, how does, how do you test for work ethic? I really don't think there's a perfect way. I think performance is often a good teller of that and like promotions and things like that. And there's some interview questions I do ask, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to disclose it because who knows who's listening. <laughs> well, actually in some ways like that, I, I find that to be a, a, a good sign of conscientiousness, which I think, which I think matters, right. That they've, that they've done their research. But I'm with you. I think, you know, you see those investment commercials and the investments commercials say past performance is not a sign of future performance. But for for AEs, it, I think it most certainly is, right? I, I look for people who have their history of quota attainment, winner's circle, president's club, whatever whatever you call it, on their LinkedIn profiles, on their resumes. And I think that's critical. And then yeah. absolutely promotion up 
through the ranks. Let's say you had someone, you had two people and they're like identical in every way, right? You, you assess their coachability and their work ethic to be the same, but you have to make this choice. It's a classic choice people do have to make when hiring is one person has the relevant industry experience, but they don't have the sales experience. The other person has deep sales experience, but doesn't have the industry experience. Which one do you go for and why? Uh, I think sales experience, specifically SaaS experience, is really important to me. I do notice a difference between reps that have a lot of experience selling SaaS and the sort of fast pace of that and the intensity of it versus someone that sells services. That's a total valid skill set. It's just very different, I think, to a degree less applicable. Like I think the stuff you can coach SaaS sellers on that service sellers have is easier than coaching service sellers on SaaS stuff, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Yeah, it it does make sense. Yeah, I actually want to do some data analysis on this because you can go through LinkedIn profiles and and like figure out where people, what people did before they moved. I judge success on whether or not the person lasts. It's it's a little arbitrary, but you got to come up with something. So did they last two years in the in the place they went? I think that's that's about the best you can do. I mean, obviously people get dealt a bad hand sometimes when they go places, but at least statistically, uh, statistically that should that should wash out. Another thing I look out for is have they been at companies longer than selling software longer than a year? Like if someone, obviously people get de- dealt bad hands and it's fine if you once only worked somewhere for six months, but if all your experience at different companies is one year, one year, one year, it means that you got put on a pit pretty quickly, I think. Yes, yeah, yeah. I have a I have a friend who uh, worked at Salesloft, and he was a solid salesperson. And, and you know, he jumped for a shiny object after a year. He wasn't even on a plan. He and then he went somewhere else, wasn't on a plan, and did it again. I'm like, dude, you got to stop doing this because even though I know you weren't on a plan, you're gonna have two in a row that you're starting to destroy your resume. So you got to be careful and 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 stick it out. I think also. There's a situation where, right, you join a 30-person company with five salespeople, three SDRs, and there still has to be a lot of luck that happens along the luck and skill, right, that happens along the way that it's a good product and the awareness builds and there's a good team with, you know, doing marketing and all the rest of it. Like so many great things have to happen in in those instances. But so often, you know, you're going to go to a bigger company where where things are quite different. And it takes time to to build the skill to be an effective salesperson. I mean, it can take easily a year to two to start, despite pe- people saying that ramp time is three months. It's not true. Again, you made this decision. So you, you've been this incredible lone wolf, right? Crushing it from the time you were 12 years old to get into law school, crushing it as a, a lone wolf contributor, again, hitting 200, 300% of quota routinely. Oftentimes I, I see people with your profile not want to become, not want to move into management. Like why management now for you? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a hard decision because obviously, you know, for all top reps, it's a financial one that's that's not easy to, to swallow. But the truth is I've always sort of been more passionate about leadership and coaching people and developing people and sort of setting, making more strategic decisions for the team. I think. The reason I haven't done it so far is because I happen to be very <laughs> good at it. And I also did still get to, you know, do a lot of coaching and do a lot of stuff in an individual rep. And I'm now sort of formally par- a part of leadership and contributing a lot in those ways. So 
you know, I, I've been fortunate enough that my company has invested in me and allowed me to sort of do both for the past two years. But I think I'm at the point now where I really just want to like get really good at this thing, you know? <laughs> in different companies, there, there can be very different philosophies about what the extent to which managers get involved in deals, whether it's first line managers all the way up to, you know, to the CEO. Like if you take Salesforce, both uh, Benioff and the, his, his first lieutenant both get involved in some of the monster strategic deals, right? Like if they're going to do a hundred million dollar deal or a billion dollar deal with Goldman Sachs or something like that, I mean, they are the lead salesperson on those deals. I, I'm curious, maybe as the philosophy at CB Insights, or at least your personal philosophy, how involved should you as a first line manager be involved in your reps deals? Yeah, it's a tough one. You know, it's a balance of being able to still, you know, get your feet wet and come in at the right time and help these deals get over the line and and make sure that your reps are learning from that balanced against empowering your reps and making sure they're in control. And Hoff used to always say you're the quarterback of your own deal which I didn't really understand because I don't watch football and I'm Irish, but <laughs> I think I got the I got the message. I actually remember probably my best and worst memory in sales was we had this it was end of quarter and we had, I think we were 150 behind and I had a 200K deal that was just, I talked to the, to the champion. He had said, we have 200K, you know, I've been negotiating it down from 300. And he was like, we have 200K, like I'm positive we can sign tomorrow. And a few hours later, his, oh no, sorry, it was the end of quarter. So he was like, I'm positive we can sign today if you can do this 200. And then his partner reached out to our COO saying, hey, if you can do this for 140, like we're good. And, you know, we were, I think we were like, we had a gap of 800 that we should hit and the 140 would, would have helped us get there. But I was like, no, no, I know that they have 200K and I know they will sign today. And my CEO was like, I have someone, a partner at a firm offering to sign today for 140. I don't know. And Hoff was like, you have to let her decide. This is her deal. Like, you have to let her decide. And, you know, usually I'm bird in hand, right, if someone's offering. But I knew that they had the 200. I knew categorically that that guy was just under going under. I held strong and I spent the entire day a nervous wreck. Just like if I, even Mark Jacobs, who like never gets involved, was like, Lydia, if this doesn't happen, like this is really bad. So I had my COO and Mark, my SVP and my director all just like freaking out. But my director was like insisting that I made the decision. And, you know, it was a it was a very calculated, measured risk. But uh, it did come through at the the last minute. But God, I was nervous. (laughs) You know, I think you do know. And sure, you can be wrong sometimes, but but I think you do know it. It reminds me last last night I was uh, booking an Airbnb and <laughs> I started out asking for a discount, and by the end I was like ready to pay them a premium. I, I did not end up booking there. It just got it just got too strange. But but I'm with you. I think those, that conviction is a really good way to to you know to end. And you can't do it at the beginning, but when you've got all that alignment, you have the previous commitment. You know they want and, and will benefit from what you're selling. And it's all about asking, making sure that throughout the entire process, you have all the right information to have true control over this process, right? If I'm just blindly trying to play chicken on someone that's offering 140K, that's very different to knowing and really, really knowing and having all the information and facts throughout the sales cycle that I'm confident in in holding strong. Well, that's a, a great story to end on. 
Uh, I'm so glad I finally got to to truly have a deep conversation with you since we missed the opportunity. What would that be about four years ago? And usually, top I know that lone wolf reps don't necessarily want people to 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 kind of contact them. But now that you're going to be you know managing a team, you'll be hiring. So if people do want to look for opportunities to work for you at CB Insights, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Please do reach out. I am hiring. I'm scaling a team. You can catch me on. LinkedIn, L-Y-D-I-A-R-A-H-I-L-L, or my email is L-R-A-H-I-L-L at cbinsights.com. Lydia, it was so brilliant having you on. Thank you for the time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.